It's who I am. It's who I am. It's a great song, isn't it? I guess there's nothing more consoling in life as Christians than to know that despite who we are, that God loves us, that God cares about us, and that God's involved in our, in our lives. It's also empowering to then reflect upon the God who loves us just as we are when we know that God is in that perfect reality, that perfect state, aware of every frailty that we have, aware of the fact that He has none of those, and yet that God still loves us, even as we are. It's very comforting. <coughs> Today, just for a few moments, I want to dwell upon that story. I've preached for this text, I don't know how many times in the past years. It's a text that has a lot of meaning at a lot of different levels, and one that's uh, filed away in my memory bank. I don't really need the text to tell the story, but it's always good to read it and just hear every little thing come out in its detail. This past week I was reading, uh, actually a couple of weeks ago, about a writer who was writing about this text, and he's looking at it in an entirely different way. So I want to take you for just a moment down to that focal point that this uh, writer was addressing. This article that was about the text starts out by talking about the series Law and Order. I don't know how many of you are TV buffs or how many of you never look at TV, but uh, if you look at TV much in the last years, you've probably occasionally uh, seen Law and Order. There's so much law and order on TV that you would think there must be law and order everywhere, right? <laughs> I get tickled and Sally will record all the old shows on law and order. And then when I say, that happened five years ago, she said, yeah, let's see if we remember it. <laughs> I'm going, well, yeah, we can watch half of it and not remember it. Then it gets down to that thing that you do remember. You go, why am I watching this show? I already know this. And Law and Order is very instructive. I think that's part of my curiosity with not only that, but all legal shows. Because I, once upon a time, in my old mind, as I got older, probably it's something much where I was thinking, man, this preaching gig is wearing me down. Um, I think, what would you really like to be? And I think, well, if I wasn't going to be a preacher, I think I'd like to be a lawyer. But I don't want to be a lawyer like my friend Joe Aston that I've known most of my life. Uh, and I don't want to be a lawyer, uh, even like Nathan Griffin, because they're in control, normal people that are practicing law. I want to be the lawyer that's on TV. Yeah. I want to be the lawyer who's questioning the old colonel and gets him to say, um, you know, in the cross-examination he's going through, you know, you can't handle the truth, you know. That's the kind of lawyer I want to be. I want to be like Terry Mason, for those of you who are older. I want to be like that. I want to get in there. I want to win the argument. Yes, I know that that's not the way court really goes. And it's a good thing, right? We don't want drama going on in the courtroom of life, nor in the courtroom that determines our fate in the real world. And yet we learn, even from the TV dramas, phrases that stick with us. How many times uh, can you remember the phrase, heinous crimes? What is a heinous crime? They use it all the time. It's a bad one. Well, most crimes are bad, right? You hear the use of the phrase, you can't badger the witness. And I always wonder, well, how far can you go? But then they turn around and badger them some more. So I don't really get the meaning of that. Hearsay conversations. Seems like some hearsay is okay, and other hearsay not so much. So the law is a confusing thing for those of us who not practice it on a regular basis. But there's one thing that probably, we probably do understand that they say a lot on that law and order show, uh, whether it's on the 
Good Wife, if you've been watching that recent year's drama for that show, or have memories of Perry Mason or whatever. It's a phrase that comes out like this. Objection. Non-responsive. Your Honor, would you instruct the witness to answer the question, please? Well, you know, a lot of witnesses don't want to answer the question, do they? They don't want to answer the question the way it's simply put, because I've sat on the witness stand before, not a whole lot of times, but enough times to know it's not a chair I look forward to being in. But I've been there when they ask me a question, trying to get me to say something that's not really the truth as in, in its full context, but they only want me to answer a certain part. So I'm having that much fun, usually, when I'm in court at that place, that I'll maybe answer the question with the question. Well, exactly what do you mean by that? And after about the third time of something like that, the lawyer clearly getting frustrated with me. I know he's about ready to shout to the judge, objection, that witness is non-responsive. And I'll try to give the whole story. They don't want the whole story, right? But I like the whole story. Because the truth of the story comes out in the whole story, not in a part of the story. Well, you see, the, this writer was making the point that this very thing happened to Peter. Here was Peter, he was on the sea of Galilee, back to his old way of life. Disciples following him because he was a leader type person. And he, he thinks probably he's just going to go back to doing what he's always done. After all, they've had a couple of appearances by Jesus, but what are they supposed to do with that? They don't really know. They don't really know where to go next. So it's easy to revert back to their old ways. Just like it's easy for us, right? We read things in Scripture, we understand things we're supposed to do. We might entertain examining our lives to see how much we live out that text. But if it gets uncomfortable, or if the truth makes us squirm, we, we probably will guide our minds to another direction, right? That's not unusual for people to act that way. And witnesses not only in court, but in real life, are often unwilling or unable to answer a question. A lawyer's job is to try to force them to say the kind of things that the lawyer is looking for, their version of the truth. They want a definitive response. Now, this is nothing new for us, and it was nothing new for Peter. When Jesus showed up on the sea, told them to cast their nets on the other side, and they got the little big catch, nobody other than the disciples whom Jesus loved would still recognize Jesus at that point. Certainly not Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter, the one who was living with a boatload, pun intended, of guilt and shame about what he had done. Can you, can you even imagine having seen the resurrected Lord twice? How that reality of that night of his own accidents came flooding over him? How much it hurt him to think about what he had done and not done in defense of his Lord? He had denied him three times, just like Jesus said he would. I can't imagine how much guilt he, he felt at that point on one level until I really look at my life and realize there have been plenty of times in my life. Plenty of times. Plenty of times long after I knew that the Lord had been raised from the dead that I felt ashamed of my actions. It's not a great feeling. And it's not one that Christians enjoy. But the shame of guilt is necessary for Christians to move beyond guilt. 
to, be, to move beyond guilt and to receive forgiveness. It's really only when we can confess to ourselves, if you will, and to our Lord, that we have known what was right and we have done what was wrong, or not done what was right when we knew not doing something was wrong, that that guilt comes upon us. And many psychologists really dislike that reality. They don't like people feeling guilty. They don't see guilty as being, being really healthy, but they're wrong. Guilt is a healthy thing for Christians. It is a sense of guilt, our conscience bearing witness with our own lives, that we have done something wrong that has offended God and hurt others. It is that sense of doing something wrong that encourages us to move to a better place where we do something that is right. Better than what we had done before. Show me the Christian who feels no guilt, and I'll show you the Christian who's living a very self-satisfied, self-righteous kind of life. I'll show you one who really is about examining their own life very closely. Because we all find ourselves trespassing regularly against our Lord. Now, some of you, a few of you perfected ones, are probably saying, that's not true. I've been perfected, and I'm not really doing that. And I said, well, that's good for you. How long has your perfection lasted? And if it goes beyond a day or so, I'm going to probably smile. Because I'm going to probably say, well, if you're completely at peace with God, since no guilt, I want you just to burp up. That's the nicest word I can put on it. Burp up every thought you've had in the last 24 hours, and let's examine those. Let's see if every thought every disposition, every urge has been what God would have plotted. So I don't think that many of us make it much more than a day or maybe a half a day. If things are really going well, we might get into that second day if we don't delve deeply into our motives for everything we've done or examine ourselves closely. But here's poor Peter. He's on the witness stand. And Jesus is the lawyer. And I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody cross-examining me like Jesus can do it. Because after all, all he is perfect in all his ways, and he knows how unperfect I am. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you, you know that I love you. Come on. I mean, after all, I, I'm one of your children. I've been following you. It just makes sense that I love you. Of course I love you. You know that. It's a reasonable thing I'm supposed to say. Of course I'm going to say I love you. You know I'm going to love you. But Jesus didn't let it alone there. Came back to him after saying, well, you kid my sheep. Then he came back to him and he asked me the second time, Simon, well, not, not, not Simon Peter, but Simon, son of John. We're not talking about Cephas the rock now. We're talking about Cephas, the, I can't tell you the image that came to my mind. You know, unlike a rock which is immovable, Peter was down more like Simon, the blade of grass on the ocean. He wasn't staying in one spot. He was floating around wherever the water drifted him, right? He was not set in all his ways. He was not perfect in his responses to the Lord. And then Peter says, Lord, you, you know, you know that I love you. 
There's my flock. We talked in the third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter must have thought, wow, okay, it's true, I denied you three times. You know, Lord, that I love you. You know that I believe in you. What painful moments they were for him to go through. You know all things, Lord. Ten my sheep. Now, I mean, you could preach a lot of sermons from that passage of scripture in a lot of different directions. Some people use, have based sermons upon the different words for love used there. Some people have based sermons on the fact that he talks about how to care for his sheep. I think really the picture that he's giving to Simon Peter is, you say that you love me, but the simple truth is, you're not caring for my sheep, you're leading my sheep astray. I didn't save them for fishing. I didn't give you a new name to go back to your old way of life. I called you to fish for people. That's where your glory is. That's where your joy is. That's why you were going to be Cephas and not Simon, son of John. I saved you that you might give your life for others as I gave my life for you. I mean, wow. What, how does that hit you? How does that hit you when you think about your life and you think about your prayer life and you think about the way you examine yourself? When Jesus has tried to talk to you in prayer, you do know that, right? That God talks back to you when you pray, right? Most of the time when we pray, what do we do? We say our prayer, we say amen, and we start eating, right? We don't take time to stop and, and listen for the voice of God. After all, we've already told God what God needs to do. Right? Emma, you didn't get back down to the front before the crowd blocked you off. I couldn't touch you, but I'm touching you now. Make sure Chib does not overwork himself. And when he tells you he's alright and you know that he's sick, I want you to, do you ever watch NCIS? Do you ever watch NCIS? There's a, there's a leader of that group of NCIS agents whose name is Gibbs, and on one of, the, one of his protégés, uh, who's not been at nearly as long as he is, doing something wrong, he usually pops him up back of the head. To straighten them out. <laughs> if he's not doing what he's supposed to do and he's sick and he's not taking care of his body, I want you to hit him upside the head. They said, Pastor told me to do it. <laughs> and when she does, I want you to sit down. You may be sitting on the ground. That's not my problem. I can't help you there. I want you to take your medicine. I want you to drink your water. And I want you to change your schedule if you're not recovering from this cold that's bothering you. God can't use you unless you allow him to heal you. We're watching you. 
watching it. While I'm on that, there's been someone who's going back now to Cambodia. There's been once before when it's really hot, and she got too hot. You know, once you get have a heat stroke, it's very easy to have another heat stroke. Dave, flap in the back of the head if she's not behaving. And tell her pastor said do it. And yes, I know what misery I'm going to have when you return. Care for each other. It's a long trip. Tend each other. You are all sheep of our Lord. It is the way that Jesus intends us to give ourselves away for others. It's a kind of life that Peter had not yet grasped. He was holding on and going back to what was comfortable rather than move out into ways that were not comfortable for him. It is the human tendency to do that. But it is not what we have been taught to do by our Lord. Our Lord wanted us to die to ourselves in order that we might live for others. There's nothing easy about that. There never has been and there never will be. But now I want to jump back to the start of the story. While we're caring for ourselves, while we're doing what we should do, while we're remembering that we love the Lord, we need to also remember something else. We need to remember that the start of this story was a sad picture of this group of disciples sitting out there in the water. They had fished all night long. You ever fished all night long? They caught nothing. I know what that feels like. I can't remember, to be honest, if we've ever fished all night long and not caught anything. But they've been out there all night long and caught nothing. Nothing. The Lord would not leave them where they were. He came for them. He came for Peter. He came to restore Peter and to bring him back into a relationship with him. And he comes for each one of us in the same way. When we retreat into a way of life that's not where he's called us, he does not let us do it without him coming to us. But we still have to recognize him. We still have to come to him. We still have to affirm our love for him. He can't do that for us. But he will come for you. And if you receive him and follow his ways anew and again and afresh, he will bless your life and give you a great catch where you were getting none. That's the kind of God we serve. That's why he's a good, good father. Lord Jesus, for your love for us that knows no boundaries and is perfect in every way, we stand humbled and amazed by your power in our lives. Sometimes, Lord, we are so ashamed of ourselves for how we've acted acted for things we've said, for things we've not done, for things we've done. Sometimes, Lord, our shame is so gifted we want to sleep away and return to our whole life because facing you in prayer and facing you with our disappointments is almost so painful that we would just, we would just ignore it. And yet we know that as long as we ignore it, you cannot forgive us and call us back to tending your sheep. You cannot restore us when we continue to ignore you. 
We continue to read through your scriptures and not let them seep into our lives and apply it to the way we live and think and act. We are not like you. We are like Peter. Actually, we're like Simon. And you've called us to be like Peter. So, Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation. If there are those here, Lord, who need to come to you, let them respond this morning. If there are those here, Lord, who need the arms of the church to engulf them and to hold them and to remind them that they serve a good, good Father who would love to share your love with them. Lord, we continue to lift before you all that we are as individuals and all that we are as a congregation. Make us into what we can become. Call us into what we should be doing. And use us in mighty ways so the world may see your Son, the Christ, and find salvation even as we have in our own lives. This is our prayer and our ongoing ministry. And it's all in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Christ.